going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome, greetings, salutations, and all that fun stuff. Hope all is well with you and yours. Jam-packed show to get to today. We're going to start things off talking about online charity accounts, and there's been a lot of confusion surrounding the city's latest double homicide and a couple of GoFundMe accounts that were created. Global News reporter Jenna Freeman is working on the story, and we're going to chat with her in just a couple of seconds to get a little bit more context to the story. And then we're going to bring in Shauna K. Thomas from the Better Business Bureau uh, locally to talk about some of the things that you need to keep in mind as you go about uh, thinking of contributing to different uh, causes. And as much as they may be near and dear to your heart, the overarching comment as I've been looking around has been you got to do your due diligence. You got to look into the backgrounds of who is actually creating some of these accounts instead of uh, depending on your emotions to allow you to feel better about helping someone uh, who is in need. So Shauna K. Thomas, Jenna Freeman, both going to be joining us in the next half hour to dive into that particular story. After four o'clock, the Springbank Dry Dam is been front and center over the last couple of days in Springbank. The president of the community association there is Karen Hunter. Uh, you've heard some of the the clips in the news, and I wanted a, a wider uh, discussion, I suppose, on some of the things that they would like to bring to the new provincial government's attention. As we've heard we, uh, during the campaign, we heard a few different people saying different things about what we should be doing when it comes to flood mitigation efforts to the west. Uh, even within the party, there was some confusion. I don't know if, the, if that's the right word, but there was maybe mixed messages coming from different MLAs or or candidates. And now that we have a government in place, what is the message? And we got a little bit more of that from the Jason Kenney government earlier this week. We'll chat with Karen about some of the concerns they have. We'll also meet a um, someone who has received the help of Woods Homes. Charlotte Allen will join us as well through the course of the show today um, to talk about what she has dealt with. Big announcement today coming from the city towards Woods Homes to help uh, with some of their their work. We'll also talk about a story in the news yesterday. Canadian Blood Services changing the rules regarding blood donations from men who have sex with men. And for some people, the belief is it's not enough. Others say, hey, this is another step in the right direction. So Dr. Mindy Goldman will join us from Canadian Blood Services uh, after 4.30 to talk about that. Also in town today is the 5th Annual Aboriginal Economic Development Conference. J.P. Gladue is the President and CEO of Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. He'll join us after 5 o'clock to dive more into what was talked about today and also where they're going because there's been a lot of focus obviously on the energy industry but it goes beyond that in the CCAB's mind and so we'll chat a little bit about that with JP after five o'clock we'll also talk bullying bylaws the latest community to get on board with it Chestermere Deputy Mayor Ritesh Narayan will join us. We'll dive into that one a little bit later on in the show today. Uh, This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. All right, let's fire into this one. And it's it's one of those stories that it really came to mind when... um, yesterday was the Humble Broncos Twitter account got broken into. 
And yeah, it was pretty ugly for for an hour or so yesterday. Then today you hear uh, stories of how there's these unauthorized online fundraisers to help the family of Jasmine Lovett and her young daughter, Aaliyah Sanderson. And you wonder what's going on here. And there's been a few different reports going different ways. And to shed a little bit more light into what has been said by all parties at this point, we bring in Global News reporter Jenna Freeman. Jenna, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me, Joe. Take us back to the very beginning on this one in terms of this GoFundMe account and who started it and what have been some of the concerns been raised about it? Well, so we were notified that there was a GoFundMe immediately, and I had reached out to the woman that had started it, and she was very clear from the beginning that this was for Kim Lovett, who is the mother of Jasmine Lovett, who raised her daughters by herself, and, you know, she was obviously not couldn't even comprehend having to bury not only her daughter, but her granddaughter. Um, And they were very clear that they did not want to be in the spotlight. They simply wanted to raise money and uh, to help this mother out. Um, But then I, you know, and she declined our, our, our interview to go on camera because, again, she said she just wanted it to be about Jasmine and Aaliyah. And then about a day later, she actually notified me because she said there was a second account that had been set up. And if you, it's been taken down now, but it was basically an exact replica. The same photo was used. And it also said that the uh, money that was raised was going to funeral costs and also to Robbie Sanderson, who is Aliyah's biological father. And she had just notified me because she said that he hadn't been in contact with the Lovett family. They had spoken to the Sanderson family, so that's Robbie's sister and his mother, and they were also directing people to the original GoFundMe account. So since then, uh, you know, they had to actually go to GoFundMe, and in the process, their GoFundMe got shut down, as well as his, while I think they did uh, an investigation of sorts. Um, so it's been very complicated, and... Um, just unfortunate, you know, in the face of tragedy that, you know, families have to go through something like this, but I feel like they've kind of sorted it out at this point. Mm. Now, you reached out, I understand, to the owner of the second GoFundMe account, and has there been any clarification on what exactly happened there? Yeah, so I I have been in contact with this gentleman, and he is a good friend of Robbie Sanderson's, who is obviously also distressed and grieving um, and dealing with this in whatever way he can. And so he explained to me that he had set up the GoFundMe for Robbie, and he put the Lovett family on there because he he didn't quite explain that, but he then clarified that this was indeed for Robbie, and he felt uh, the money that was raised for it would be for Robbie to do with what he wished as somebody who is grieving the loss of his daughter and his ex-fiance. Um, I think because there's been a lot of confusion and people lo- were asking a lot of questions, the GoFundMe and also the Facebook page that this gentleman had set up has have since both been taken down. So there is just one place for people to go to and to donate to. And they were also very clear with me that the money that they are raising, the the dollar amount they're raising was given to them by a funeral home. And anything beyond that is not going to the family. It's going um, to the emergency women's shelter. I understand. It's one of those situations where it sounds like everybody had good intentions in this particular case. It just so happened that it wasn't, it doesn't sound like it was very coordinated. It wasn't very coordinated. And I think the communication was perhaps a bit lost and and could have been rolled out a bit better because, you know, he had advertised it originally as, you know, going to the Lovett family to cover funeral costs when, in fact, uh, you know, the Lovett family had not been in contact with him 
at all. And as far as they knew, uh, you know, he wasn't contributing to the funeral costs. So I think that's where, you know, people were a, a bit up in arms about this all. And obviously what it also does is take an emotional toll on the family as well, because they're sitting there, you know, innocent bystanders and in all of this once again. 100%. And, and also unfortunate, you know, for the Lovett family, because when that GoFundMe page was shut down, even temporarily, they can't access those funds. So if she's in the process of trying to set up, you know, she said she wanted to bury her daughter and her granddaughter properly. So if she's in that process, she can't actually access that money when it's being shut down. The good news is, though, it has been uh, reinstated by GoFundMe. An unfortunate set of circumstances for everybody involved on top of what has been a tragic situation. And Jenna, I appreciate the time this afternoon and providing some context behind the story. Indeed. Thanks, Joe, so much. And so it begs the question even beyond that is as a consumer, as someone who is going online and feels uh, empathy towards family and loved ones and that is what do you do? Who do you go to? And so now joining us on the program is Shauna K. Thomas from the Better Business Bureau here in Calgary to shed a little light on that front. Shauna K., thanks so much for the time as always. Thanks for having me, Joe. Whenever stories like this do pop up, there are those questions. And so you are here, I hope, with some answers when it comes to GoFundMe accounts and some of the things that people should be keeping in mind as they think about giving to causes that they hold near and dear to their hearts. Right. So it, it's very sad that when these things happen, um, you know, tragedy, disaster, there are people out there are looking to take advantage of um, people who are willing to give. And, you know, they try to tug at your heartstrings to give. Uh, but when you're when you're giving, you also want to make sure you're doing your homework. You don't just want to be giving with your credit card or just giving from your heart, but make sure that you're securing your credit card, securing your hard-earned cash. We suggest that people, um, first of all, try to research a correlation between the organizer and the persons who are they're, they're said to be seeking the money for. So in, in this case, you would want to send a, a personal message to the organizer of the campaign to find out the relation with the family that he's getting the money for. There wasn't much detail about what the money will be used for. So you also want to ask those questions. Um, the original um, GoFundMe had the detail of money will be used for funeral expenses, etc. This one just said money will go to the family. To the family to do what? So you want to be asking those questions whenever you're giving to, if it's a person or if it's a charity, you want to make sure you're getting that kind of detail. Um, it was it was interesting that there was also spelling error in the in the page itself, and that's another red flag. The the fact that there's an error in the spelling of the name is something that you want to also talk to the organizer about. Now, this may not have been a scam altogether, but what's the relationship that exists between this person and the family? How likely it is that this money will end up in the hands of the family? You want to be asking those questions. And there's the other um, organizer, which, which is the one that was set up first. It would, be all, it would also be good to contact that organizer to find out if they know of any other um, collections happening just to verify before you give. It's amazing how these different accounts do pop up. I mean, I remember the Humboldt Broncos bus tragedy as an example. You had the one big one, but you had some other spinoffs and others who were trying to cash in on it. And so, as you mentioned, a, a big part of this almost seems as though key, uh, time and patience is almost needed in these cases where you're doing your due diligence. Yep. So you have to ha- you, you have to take some time. Don't the, the, the GoFundMe is usually there for weeks, some of them maybe months. 
So don't feel like you have to give right away as soon as you see something pop up, say, hey, give. And, it's, you know, you're now feeling emotional and you want to give at that time. But do take some time to do the research. Take a couple of days, talk to a couple of friends. Have they seen these sites? Have they um, seen persons asking for money? You know, and that way you can get more idea of what's really happening. If you just give in the moment, it's more likely for you to be giving to a cause that you don't want to be giving to really. Mm-hmm. And I know that I uh, would like with, with GoFundMe and, and some of these better known uh, platforms, they're pretty safe, but there are some others that are not so safe. And so it's really important to make sure you're, you're also safeguarding your information, your credit card info, all that kind of stuff as well. Yes, it's definitely important to be safeguarding your personal information. Um, So there are sites that may pop up that resemble legitimate websites, and scammers mimic these websites, but there are spelling errors on them. There is no lock icon in the browser, for example. You want to make sure you have that. You want to make sure it's HTTPS, which suggests that the website is secure. Um, You want to make sure it has details of how the money will be used. Um, and these are some of the things that you can use to tell if a website is legitimate and one that's not legitimate. Almost a case of where the more thorough it is, the better off it is. But at the same time, you still got to do your due diligence, regardless of what your what your initial imp- uh, impression is of a website or a fundraiser. Yep, you still you still have to do your due diligence, and it, it's good to give to those. Um, organizations, charities that, you know, you've been giving, you, you know of them for a while. They are, they've been doing what they're doing for a long time. And so they're more likely to know what they're about and to um, use your money wisely than ones that are, you know, a couple months or so on. Those can be legitimate ones too. But for those ones, you have to do even more research to make sure that you're giving to, to a worthy cause. Mm-hmm. Shauna Kay, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Shauna K. Thomas of the Better Business Bureau here in Calgary, shedding a little bit of light of the, into these charity accounts through GoFundMe accounts. A lot of questions being raised of the new provincial government as to what is in store for flood mitigation west of the city. Is the proposed Spring Bank Dry Dam the Needed option? Are there better options? McLean Creek comes to mind. Where does the new UCP government stand becomes the question mark. And even beyond that is those concerns. They want to be heard out in Springbank and surrounding area. Springbank Community Association President Karen Hunter joining us now on the program. Karen, thanks so much for the time today. Hi, thanks for having me on the on the show. So two open houses that you guys have had over the last couple of nights. What has been sort of the tone that you've heard as you've uh, heard from area residents and those who are, are directly impacted by what's going to be happening uh, west of the city? Well, you know, first and foremost, this project is so complex. There really isn't a precedent that we're able to find to explain how it functions and the consequences in any detail that we need as a community. So, you know, we've been combing through the thousands of pages that go back and forth between the Alberta government and the provincial government trying to synthesize what it means for us. So those two open houses were an attempt to share what we've learned with the community. And what have you learned? Well, you know, this project is just growing and growing in complexity and cost. And I think because it is, you know, a rather new way of approaching flood, that there's just so many questions that continue to, um, new questions that continue to be uh, asked 
about, you know, how the dam will function, what are the consequences once it's drained, how will it impact our, our groundwater quality because there's springs under the site, how much dust will be generated by the up to four meters of silt, 700 acres of up to four meters of silt, and what are the consequences of that? So, you know, honestly, we're left with more questions than we have answers. But so it was our attempt to sort of let the community know what we've learned. And um, like I say, we, you know, every time we have events with our community, people raise more issues that we don't know. You know, how are our water cooperatives going to be impacted? What about the wildlife and the West Nile risk? So, honestly, we believe it's our right to ask those questions. From that standpoint, then, what are some of the major concerns, the overarching issues that you see need to be addressed by the new government? Well, you know, the biggest concern that we have right now, and I guess it's as an Albertan, not as a Springbank resident, is the cost. We estimate this is $400 million over budget. So, you know, when you put that in perspective, that would pay for Calgary's new field house and go a long way to paying for Calgary's new arena. So I guess we're looking to the the government to say, wow, this project should be, you know, high on the priority list of things to look at when we're trying to manage our our funds. So that's sort of the first thing, but that's with my Alberta hat on. Mm -hmm. As a community person, oh, geez, I mean, we have so many issues. Air quality, as I mentioned, from the dust and methylmercury that will be generated as organic material decays. We have transportation changes that will impact our community because our roads are being closed when the dam is in operation. We have water quality concerns. We have concerns about our economic future in Rocky View County. So that project, it's it's about 6,000 acres sucked out of our land base, 6,800 actually. And so that's there's been property taxes paid on that land. So economically, Rocky View County is not being kept whole uh, here, not to mention future development opportunity. I mean, everybody who's ridden uh, their bike through Springbank or driven through Springbank knows, you know, this, this area has potential over the future. And once that land is flooded, once that is done, that land is, is forever sterilized. And grasslands have a very important role to play in the, the ecosystem. Is the answer? Oh, sorry. And were you going to continue? Oh, go ahead. I was just yeah. going to ask: is is the re, is the answer saying no to it right off the bat, or are you asking more for, as a kind of a hold back? Let's do more to get more information done, so that we've got all the info uh, out on the table for not only Springbank but also uh, all of the the other possibilities upstream or down. Uh, absolutely. So I guess what we have observed is we think that in the panic of 2013, the aftermath of that very horrible flood, which impacted Calgary very terribly, as well as Bright Creek and Redwood Meadows, we, you know, we think that they did the, maybe in the moment, it was the best decision they could make. Springbank seemed cheaper and faster, and it checked the box for flood mitigation. It didn't check the box for any other um, benefits for water management, such as drought or fire, irrigation, uh, recreation. But I think, you know, they said, man, it's cheaper and we can manage this flood risk. So fast forward now, you know, it's, it's a long time in the future. The costs have, have more than doubled. And we're saying, hang on a minute. You know, you need to go back and, and take a look at whether or not there's a project that checks more boxes for better value of our tax dollars. And we don't think the original analysis, as much as they did it in the heat of the moment, we actually don't think it was comprehensive enough to make a sound decision on, on the investment. So, for instance, I mean, there was no consultation with us, anybody in, in West Rocky View, Bread Creek, uh, Susina, 
and uh, Rocky View County and, and the community of Springbank, of course, it sits right in the middle of our community. And so, you know, when you miss those consultation steps, I just don't think you can do that in this day and age, but yet they did. And, and while they skipped those steps, they also made a lot of value-based decisions in the lead-up to, to choosing SR1. As a good example, they said, well, it doesn't impact the, the First Nations in the area because it's not on their land. What they didn't recognize is the Susina is adjacent, 300 meters from, from the footprint, and that floodwaters will back up onto the Susina a community of, of Redwood Meadows, not to mention they're not providing flood protection through SR1 for the Susina Nation. So, you know, a glaring oversight in the process because they hired someone out of Europe and they made some value-based decisions. The other value-based decision they made, which, you know, in our mind is just not acceptable, is they, they said campgrounds and moving around some parking lot of campgrounds in the McLean Creek area was sort of more detrimental than uh, moving homes and businesses and livestock and wildlife in Springbank. So again, another value-based decision that the forests are more important than the grasslands. So you have technical people looking at this and making those value-based decisions, and we just we, we disagree. People in Bray Creek disagree. You know, we would love to get a, a water storage, um, you know, location upstream that could provide fire protection for Mc, McLean Creek area and Bray Creek. They were, um, Bray Creek is the, has the second highest risk of fire in the province at this point. Mm. So when you can have a, a water storage facility nearby Bray Creek, you've protected that community, you've protected Redwood Meadows and the Susina. In addition, you can also manage drought and flood for a broader range of residents. So you start to check those boxes the farther upstream you go. Mm. So we just think it's time for them to go back and reevaluate the decision they made. Karen, thank you so much for uh, giving us some insight into your concerns uh, with the Springbank Dry Dam. Okay, thank you very much. Karen Hunter, the president of the Springbank Community Association. A lot to, uh, to mull over there, and I'm sure uh, by the sounds of it, uh, Rick McIver was on our radio station a couple of days ago saying they're going through, I think it was at 700 or 800 different questions from community members. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes of these reviews and some of the answers and questions that the new UCP government is going to be uh, diving into when it comes to the Springbank Dry Dam. From the west side of the city now to the east side of the city and the city of Chestermere taking a step towards le- uh, legislating against bullying. A special council meeting held on Tuesday where they gave first reading to a new anti-bullying bylaw. Joining us now on the program is Deputy Mayor uh, Ritesh Narayan. And Ritesh, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. You're very welcome. What is the intention with this new bylaw that Chestermere has in place or is looking to put in place? Yes, the intention is uh, has come out of a realization that what was in place before, various policies, uh, what the criminal code has, was simply not far-reaching enough. It wasn't helping the victims, it wasn't helping them make complaints, it wasn't even helping the perpetrators to not only identify them, but see what the issues are to get to them. So this essentially adds another tool, not to the only enforcement of things, but also in terms of identifying and helping and restoring some sort of justice. 
The question becomes in cases like this where municipal governments try to get in or are, are looking to uh, get at the root issues of bullying. Uh, what defines bullying that goes beyond the, the arc of, uh, I'll, I'll call it harassment or those kinds of criminal code charges? Yes, I think that's a really good question because uh, bullying is very subjective. Uh, so bullying is not only physical, but it can also be psychological. Now, to your question uh, in respect to harassment, now, if somebody harasses me, the bystander could, you know, make feeling, you know, it's not really harassment and vice versa. Now, the thing with our bylaw is it expands the definition in a way so that we take the definition that is given to us by the complainant. If a complainant feels that they've been harmed in any way, whether physical or psychologically, it is something that our uh, law enforcement will look into and investigate further. When it comes to, I'll use uh, email bullying as an example, how difficult do you foresee this one being if it's somebody who you're, the victim may be in Chestermere, but let's say the uh, perpetrator might be in Calgary or Edmonton? Is there, do you guys have that jurisdictional right to throw a bylaw charge in those cases? And in places like that, that's where the RCMP kicks in. So, as I said before, uh, this is something that will be worked in collaboration with the local peace officers and the RCMP. Wherever the uh, peace officers feel that it's not their jurisdiction, that's where the RCMP jurisdiction kicks in. And obviously they've got way more resources than our community peace officers do. They will then determine um, to the course of the investigation and figure out if there's uh, evidence for uh, prosecution. And what we're trying to stay away from uh, unless, of course, you know, there's plenty of facts and figures mm-hmm. and uh, the, the materials of the case. But what we're trying to do is use a more uh, toned-down version of what the criminal justice uh, system usually presents. We find that both for the victims and the perpetrator, the criminal justice system can be quite intimidating and traumatic. So our bylaw will basically uh, address those uh, I, won't, don't, I don't want to say minor bullying, but where bullying has basically started off. So it's basically a gap between what's there right now, what the criminal justice system already provides, and what school administrators or uh, managers have. Uh, so it basically fills that gap. What is the timeline for next steps for this bylaw before it becomes part of what uh, you guys have as legislation? So plenty of consultation. Uh, this is something that we do not want to rush. And obviously, first reading uh, went through unanimously. But we, we are, we're trying to get as many residents involved. We're also we'll be going to schools. We've got uh, youth groups in the city that we'll be consulting. And we want to engage with them as much as possible and uh, hopefully have this uh, ready for the new school year in September. Deputy Mayor, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Ritesh Narayan in Chestermere talking about a new anti-bullying bylaw. First reading given earlier this week. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR.
Turning our attention to a story that uh, first surfaced yesterday. The blood donation deferral period for gay and bisexual male donors is dropping from one year to three months in Canada. And I wanted to revisit that story today with Canada Blood, uh, Canadian Blood Services Medical Director, Dr. Mindy Goldman. Doctor, thanks so much for the time uh, this afternoon. Thank you for having me. Let's start off with your reaction first off to yesterday's federal announcement. Well, we're very pleased uh, that the criteria will be changing to a three-month deferral for men who have sex with men. Well, we've been working on this criterion in particular for many years. Um, You may remember that we used to have a permanent deferral for men who had sex with men. This changed to a five-year deferral in 2013 and then 12 months in 2016. Um, because safety was maintained with those changes and our testing has become so good, uh, Canadian Blood Services and HEMA Quebec asked Health Canada if we could do yet another incremental step and move to a three-month deferral. So we're very pleased that this was accepted by Health Canada and that we'll be able to move forward. Talk a little bit about the research aspect of it and the technology aspect of it and how things have really moved forward as the years have progressed. So as the years have progressed, our testing has improved tremendously so that the period of time when somebody might be infected but would not be picked up by our test, which we call the window period in our jargon, has really shrunk. And And that's true both for HIV, but also for hepatitis B and hepatitis C that are also a little bit more common in men who have sex with men. Um, Also, people are more aware of other sites where they can go get tested for HIV uh, than they were, you know, let's say in the early 90s. And um, so there's quite a bit of science around why we think this, uh, this change is safe. We also have the scientific part, but also a lot of stakeholder involvement in this particular donor criterion. So we've uh, had all through the years a lot of support from both patient groups that get transfused a lot, as well as LGBTQ groups that obviously have a high level of interest in the policy. And both of these groups have written letters of support to Health Canada uh, for the the change in criterion. So some of the groups would like us to go even further and not stop here, but they are supportive of this as a positive incremental step. Mm -hmm. So then the question becomes, and I've heard this reaction is uh, almost a not good enough, it should be even smaller, but I mean the, the technology and the research is still moving forward. And so I wonder what is the next step? How do you guys move that deferral process a little bit further down the line? Um, there are a lot of research projects underway to try and answer that question. You may be aware that the federal government through Health Canada um, funded a research uh, program for exactly that, to look at um, alternative screening mechanisms for men who have sex with men. And there's 
15 projects that were funded through that research program and are underway. So we're hoping that out of that will come maybe some different approaches rather than just having a sort of time-based deferral that will be able to move to different approach where we really get at how can we identify a a low-risk group of uh, men who have sex with men who could donate blood. When it comes to the future as well, do you get the sense at all that this is going to open up some doors for your organization in terms of the number of people who are willing to come forward and donate blood because this deferral process is a little shorter now? Yes, we're hoping that uh, we'll gain donations in two ways. Firstly, people who are currently not eligible who will become eligible. So we think that based on past experience, we think that we will gain a few hundred new donors that way. Uh, And then secondly, we're hoping that people who are sort of allies of uh, the LGBTQ community who are eligible to donate blood currently, but maybe were not donating because they felt that our policies were not evidence-based and not science-based, will see that we are moving forward as an organization and uh, they, they will come forward and donate as well. Dr. Goldman, I do appreciate the time and the insight this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Mindy Goldman's Medical Director at Canadian Blood Services, shedding some light on a story we brought you yesterday. Fifth and uh, fifth annual, there we go, Aboriginal Economic Development Conference being held in Calgary today. Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business President and CEO JP Gladu joining us now on the program. And JP, let's jump right into this one here. Uh, what are some of the key themes and some of the things that you want front and center amongst those businesses trying to uh, make an impression? You know, one of the things that we've battled with in this country are some preconceived notions about who we are as Indigenous people and our business uh, ability. Uh, and there's been some really incredible leaders that have laid down some really great uh, pathways for us to walk. But in, in the private sector, I think particularly in the natural resource sector, it's gone really well um, out of necessity, quite frankly, at the very early on uh, through consultation and accommodation and all of that. And so, but there's this really great narrative that has emerged the last decade or so that there's this resurgence of the indigenous economy. So it, it's, it is busting barriers and those perceptions about who we are. Uh, sadly, we haven't quite seen it yet uh, when we look at uh, federal uh, or even provincial spend on indigenous uh, businesses. So. You know, we've gone out and we've done the hard work around the data collection. We've got the best information in the world on an Indigenous economy and compared that against government uh, NAICS codes um, because they're, they, they just don't understand. They don't think that we exist. And um, we were actually able to prove to them that our net capacity, so just to put this in perspective, uh, in 2017, the government spent $16.4 billion, approximately around there, uh, but only 0.3% of their spend was on the indigenous businesses, which is about $65 million. Yet a company like Suncor spent $700 million last year, one company, 10 times that of the federal government. So back, back to the capacity is that we were able to prove to them that uh, we can hit 24.2% of net capacity spend in the federal government. So we got to speak truth. 
And uh, when we begin to understand the real opportunities, then we can get into uh, debunking uh, the myth, and then we can begin into actually demystifying uh, the process. And that's part of the issue and what we're trying to address today. Is the big challenge on the horizon in terms of just making sure that the story is being told more than anything else instead of uh, sort of thinking that, okay, I'm just going to hold my story to be true within my own community and not try to uh, tell it to the, the, the rest of the world, so to speak? That's a great question, Joe. The, you know, the, the, the story is there, and we're, you know, the, the new report that's just being released today around our capacity is, is, is it. You know, CCAB, I've got, you know, this extraordinary team and board of directors, and our members are doing really great work, and it's about creating that space. But, you know, companies and, and our, we have to hold our Indigenous businesses to account as well. We've got to step into that space. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got to generate the opportunities, and that's what we did. We created the Aboriginal Procurement Marketplace where, uh, any company, you know, our members can go in there and put on uh, in the framework into the tool with our partners. Tealbook actually is, is our is our partnership on that for the framework, or sorry, the, the marketplace, and put the activity in there. So it's one thing to talk about it, but it's really about action. So we're we're, we're done talking. No, <laughs> let's get to it and let's start developing these business relationships because we see incredible things that happen when 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 those when that occurs. I suppose here in Alberta, you're looking at it from a different standpoint, especially around here in Calgary. Everybody talks mm-hmm. about the ring road opportunities that are going to be coming abound in the not-too-distant future. I mean, you almost want to get ahead of the curve and start selling those stories now because those are some opportunities that are going to be coming in, in really short order. No, absolutely. It's, it's about planning. It's about understanding where the opportunities are because if you wait too late, those opportunities, like a surfer, are going to go by, and you're going to have to wait for another wave. And the wave of opportunities that are coming in around, um, say, the Ring Road, for instance, um, are there. So talking about them more uh, you know, is one thing. And then actually setting up the, the, the relationship through business activity by creating joint ventures, for example, with the local First Nation entrepreneurs as well as the community of Sathena itself, you know, that, that, is, that is what's going to get in front of that wave so that we can all surf together. Uh, and uh, hang 10, I think that's what those surfers say. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at one of the things that I, I noticed right off the bat, a launch of a new business micro fund for female Indigenous entrepreneurs, what yeah. does that mean to you guys to be able to uh, bring that to the fore? You know, we're really passionate about So last night um, we celebrated, um, well, it was actually in April in Toronto, we celebrated the Indigenous Women in Leadership Award. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicole Bork-Boucher, the Boucher Group, she's an outstanding star here in Alberta. And, you know, you, you mentioned her name in the oil and gas sector, and everybody knows her and her company and what her and Dave are doing. Um, and the thing is that, again, back to my earlier comments about uh, perceptions, and I'll, I'll say it right out they are where the racism towards indigenous people is still unfortunately live and well and it's even more so difficult for indigenous women and you know getting access to capital is one of the biggest barriers for for our for our entrepreneurs so we thought we would alleviate that a little bit by creating a micro loan financing program our first uh, tranche was with cibc and uh, indigenous women in leadership summit uh, partners who made a donation and we want to be able to just give these four thousand dollar uh, loans, no interest. Like there's a small administration fee to help these women start up because you know sometimes it just takes that little bit of seed capital to get you to that next level, to get you to the level before next after that. 
Um, and so we want to empower Indigenous women and we want to bring them into the network of CCAB and the tools and, uh, you know, the relationships that we've generated over the last 37 years and support them. Um, because their, their journey is often tougher than others. But when we, when, when they are supported, I mean, you see the Nicoles of the world that now have 1,100 people working for her organization, of which, you know, over 400 of them are Indigenous. The impact that they can have is incredible. We want to be a part of that, uh, that growth. Absolutely. JP, do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joe. Really appreciate it. Thank you. JP Gladue, the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business with the fifth annual Aboriginal Economic Development Conference here in Calgary. Right. One of the news stories you've heard a little bit about today is around Woods Homes, organization providing treatment and support for kids dealing with mental health, addiction and homeless issues. There's a new location being set up in Englewood. It's said to be the first of its kind in Western Canada, and it's opened where a number of services are going to be provided to youth. Exit Youth Hub will provide addiction and mental health counseling, medical care, short-term accommodations and job skills training. One of the people who is benefited greatly from this is a young lady by the name of Charlotte Allen, and she joins us now on the program. Charlotte, thanks so much for the time. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Take us back to the very beginning and some of talk us through some of those uh, things that you've gone through in your life. Oh, well, right at the beginning, uh, that was I started coming to this program around last April, and it was... It started off uh, me just like kind of breaking down after not being able to finish school. I had 32 credits to my name and I know I'd barely finished my grade 10 levels, let alone any grade 11 classes or anything like that. And so I was like, I don't even know what I want to do. So I thought I'd get back into cooking because I don't need a diploma to cook. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I got back into that um, and I got introduced to YCAP and I came into YCAP just so angry so bitter just not even ready i just wanted to be somewhere else like just literally anywhere else than i was in that moment and so it was just a bit hard at the beginning i guess uh just getting into the routine but yeah i was like in a really terrible spot when i first started going to ycap and they gave me a place to like just go through that and heal and i'd never had anywhere like i'd never been anywhere that gave me that space so it was really good what do you think led you down that path towards stress and eventually addictions? Um, I would, I'm going to say the education, my education and just how uh, the formal learning just doesn't fit with how I know how to do things. Um, tests, all the standardized, like all that, it just never worked for me. I have the most terrible ADHD, ADD combination and I cannot sit still for the life of me. And so for 10 years of just sitting in a classroom, being told what to do, and if I didn't do it right, I was wrong. That definitely messed me up to a point where I had to relearn a lot of things about what it means to get an education and what it means to learn because there are so many different ways and Alberta education is not the place for me. Mm-hmm. And it just, it gave me addictions, it gave me stress levels, it I'm going to admit that it put me in the hospital at least once or twice. Like, it is not a good place. And then I got to discovering choices, and I got put in a YCAP where these people actually had experiences with youth such as myself mm-hmm. who had struggled with the systems and just everyone. Do you remember that moment where the light bulb turned on and you went, this is good, this is, this is the path? 
Um, I'm actually, I think it happened. I was in the walk-in freezer at the old Rideo house. Um, Kayla had just told me, she was like, yeah, if you need to like go scream or something, just go do it in the walk-in. And I'm like, yeah. And so I walked in there and I was doing whatever beforehand. And I'm like, I could do this. Like, even, like, even if I couldn't scream in the walk-in, I could still do this. And I like, cause I knew where everything was and it's just, I felt comfortable and I knew what I was doing and I'd never been anywhere that I felt that my skills were being used or like recognized. How does it feel to know that you've been able to overcome so many of these obstacles and come out a better person and also one that is able to articulate what you've gone through? I mean, like even today, you're talking uh, in front of cameras and microphones and even here on the radio. Um, it makes me feel really good because uh, I never thought that I'd be given a space to talk and speak and actually be heard. And so it feels really good because I want to be able to give voices or just have be representing the people who aren't represented because I know a lot of the women, Indigenous women, aren't seen and the fact that I'm on television or that I'm on the news or I'm in the paper, that I'm doing these things, like, I'm out there. Like, I want it to be known that we can do these things even if you don't see us. What is this, what has this all done for your confidence level? Oh, it's made it, like, so much better. Like, it's just shot like through the roof because um, everyone is like every single time I tell people that I want to go into cooking and that I want to work in a kitchen and that I want to just like do that. They're like, well, aren't you worried about the hours? Aren't you worried about like the people or how like grueling it is? And I'm like, no, this is what I love to do. This is a new job for me. And like, I get it that you probably didn't have the best experiences in, in this industry because it wasn't for you. And that is okay. Like, these are my people and I'm good with these things. Like, I know how to do it all and nothing is going to scare me. Like, every single person took everything from me except cooking. So I will be like, no, no one is going to take this from me. I took it back and look at where I am. You're in a pretty good space by the sounds of it. And so I'm going to ask the question. A lot has been made about uh, the funding being made available to Woods Homes. But what does Woods Homes mean to you? Woods Homes means like a good, safe place where people can be people and you can be angry, sad, happy, all of it in between. And you can just be human without those expectations or the judgments that the general public usually holds toward um, toward people such as myself with who struggle with mental health issues and addictions and all these like taboo somewhat touchy subjects that we haven't really talked about yet in like in our social lives yet so it's I think it's a good place to come to if you need the help and if you're willing to stick it through even when it's real hard Absolutely. Charlotte, I do appreciate the time and and sharing a little bit of your story. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary Today.